So um, if you can, open up to the book of Acts as we um, hear the word from Pastor Tim today. But the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, folks. And all of you have the Holy Spirit if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. So I know this is extraordinary. It sounds extraordinary, and it is extraordinary, except for that's what the Lord wants to do in all of our lives. And that's what the book of Acts has been about. It's been about uh, this very thing, that they are going to bring you to synagogues and magistrates and authorities. And don't worry, Jesus says. Who here loves to worry? Come on, come on. Two, yeah, right. Jesus says, don't worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And this is one of the themes of what we're doing here in the book of Acts. In fact, when the apostle Paul, who used to be Saul, was walking on the road to uh, Damascus, I almost said Emmaus, but anyway, Damascus, and all that inner, that dialogue that day, one of the things, oh, wait a minute. When I get done here today, we got to sing happy birthday to Catherine. See what happens when you get to be my age. But uh, anyway, okay, that's my little thing. Remind me to sing to Catherine. Uh, but um, this is one of the things that is the theme. He's walking to the road to Damascus. The Lord's having dialogue with him. And the Lord says, I'm going to set you before councils and kings. And you're like, how in the world would this happen? Man, I might be a diplomat or an ambassador, be very rich and go into the king's courts and share the gospel. We'll have tea together and lunch. Well, Paul, I, you're going to be in front of the kings and the councils, but you're going as a prisoner. People are going to be accusing you of things. There will be tribulation, Jesus said. And boy, did Paul find that out. And we get to this place in chapter 24 now of Acts. That's where we are. We're in Acts 24, and it's almost, i got to tell you, I, I shouldn't reveal this to you, but I will. I don't really like movies very well. I just don't like to sit around, so I need to chill, I know, and I talked about that on Wednesday. But one of the movies I do like, uh, don't judge me now, is The Gladiator. I love that movie. And one of the reasons is, is it's Shakespearean. Would you agree? I mean, there's plots and twists, and you have to watch it several times, which I have. Uh, to figure out all the plots and the twists. And here in this book, right here, here's the original. All the plots and the twists and the turns that you think, you know, just a few phrases and sentences here that make the course of Paul's life go this way or that way, Peter this way or that way, the apostles this way or that way. And you recognize, if you're looking and thinking and praying, listen, that God is provident and sovereign over our lives. And there's no accidents. And there's things that happen that are bad. We heard of one today. And nobody's jumping up and down and clicking their heels and praising the Lord that that happened to Jared's dad. But we do know that in the midst of this terrible fallen world, God can even use what men mean for evil 
for good and glory. He can turn it around, and he does it. These these little moves of life we think maybe at times are inconsequential could be such big things, and we're seeing it right here, right before our eyes in chapter 24, because remember, Paul has come back to Jerusalem, the dream of his life. He did his third missionary journey all around the Mediterranean Sea, collecting gifts, money, so that he, from the Gentile churches, non-Jewish church, so that he could take the gift to the church in Jerusalem, and he thought it would bring unity. And he did deliver it, and that was great. But while he's there, he gets in trouble. Why is he in trouble? Remember, the Jewish leaders were really upset with him about preaching this new thing, they thought, this new thing, the way, Christianity. And in fact, when he came back to Jerusalem this time, the leaders of the Jerusalem church said, hey, you know, uh, we dealt with whether Gentiles have to be Jewish in order to be Christian. But what about Jews who want to continue on in some of the uh, traditions that God set up? Can they do that? And uh, those sorts of people, the leaders said to Paul, are kind of upset. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to sponsor four Jewish men in their vows. And even you, Paul, pay for their vows, their sacrifices. And that'll be a good way to smooth over uh, some of the things that people are saying about you. Remember this. And Paul participates, but what happens is, is the crowd, the Jewish crowd starts getting mad at Paul, mad at him because they say in a lie that he actually brought a Gentile into, uh, in too far into the temple where Gentiles weren't supposed to go. And one of the things that the Roman government, who dominated the Jewish uh, world at this time, allowed still was for a violation of profaning the temple or violating the temple, they would allow the Jews to issue capital punishment against somebody who did this. This is a serious charge. But it was a lie. (laughs) And you remember, they're ready to tear Paul apart And the Roman leader, Lysias, he comes out and he sends down his Romans and they pull Paul away. They put him, they start taking him up the steps of the Antonio Fortress and Paul gives a speech, a preaching, a teaching, a gospel message. And, you know, they don't hear it and they get mad when he talks about Gentiles the, the gospel being open to the Gentiles, and then eventually later on they get mad when he speaks of the resurrection. I'm trying to catch you up. It sounds Shakespearean. It's the original. But, but when I say it, I say it with all due uh, uh, reverence because God is providential and sovereign, and it reminds me of that book of Esther where Esther was for such a time as this, and uh, go ahead and read that, and study up on providence and sovereignty. It's such beautiful attributes of God. And oh, that we can trust him more and more because of his providence and his sovereignty. Well, uh, we get uh, 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 to the place last week where 40 Jewish assassins in cahoots with the Supreme Court of uh, Israel are going to 
try to get the Romans to parade Paul out and kill him. And the Romans say, well, we're not doing that because Romans of that time and in that era didn't want to upset uh, Rome and uh, be seen as weak because they couldn't control their province. So they protect Paul. And uh, they say, well, you know what, maybe what we'll do, uh, Lysias says, Claudius, the leader of the Romans, maybe we should scourge him. And Paul says, wait a minute, I guess you didn't know. I'm a Roman citizen, which shuts that down because a Roman citizen couldn't be scourged. Well, all of this, uh, all in chapter 23, ambushes come. Uh, they decide that they're going to uh, send Paul up to a place called Caesarea. And hopefully we'll cue the uh, uh, map here. Yes. And Paul leaves from Jerusalem and he goes to the first city of the night uh, to stay the night before he goes to Caesarea and to Patras. And you'll notice it's in Galilee, or excuse me, Samaria. Judea is down here where Jerusalem is. The area of Samaria is there. No Jewish people went into Samaria. So a 470-man army takes Paul, uh, protects him because there was assassination attempts for his life, from Jerusalem to Antipatris. At that time, they release most of the uh, 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 army to go back to Jerusalem, and Paul goes to Caesarea, and the Romans were no dummies. They set up their site, their capital, their place where they would stay on this unbelievable beach town where you can go, if you'll go with us, you'll see, you can go and see the remnants, you'll see it, the Hippodrome, the Colosseum, uh, you'll see uh, the aqueducts where they got water all the way from Mount Carmel way up there 12 miles. And it's beautiful. And Caesarea is right there on the Mediterranean Sea. And so all of that is happening with Paul. Uh, uh, he's being sent to a proconsul up there named Felix. And the commander of Rome sends a note with him. And we went through that note, a letter. And the commander of Rome uh, sends that letter, and Felix, the governor, who's the governor of the area there of Caesarea and all that, Felix, who is this slave, the only slave to ever become a governor in the whole Roman world because his brother was a friend of uh, the Caesar. He had pole, and he was a terrible governor. Tons of riots during his reign. He even had, listen to this, Felix even had the high priest Jonathan murdered. He put a hit out on him. Can you believe this? This is a cruel man, this Felix. He's the governor now, and he's going to play an important role here, and that's why I'm taking all this time to tell you all about this. Watch this. In verse 24, or excuse me, chapter 24, verse 1, as when we left off last week, Felix uh, just basically says, let's just wait until your accusers come, and then we'll see what we're going to do. So Paul is in a beautiful uh, palace, Herod's palace, out there in Caesarea. And it says, after five days, Ananias, stop. 
There's three Ananiases in the book of Acts. This Ananias is the high priest. He's been high priest for a while, and he also high priest in Israel, or excuse me, in Jerusalem. He was the high priest. Let me just tell you this real quick, if you don't know. It makes more sense if you know. In Israel at the time, they had a 70-person ruling supreme council called the Sanhedrin. It was made up mostly of uh, Pharisees who followed the first five books of the law, but also the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament. The Pharisees believed in resurrection and angels and supernatural things that God did. Also in the council was a group called the Sadducees. They were sort of the liberal elite. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible and or the Old Testament, and they didn't believe in resurrection angels or anything supernatural. And they were more like the liberal elite of the time. Okay, And they comprised most of this council. And I said it's a 70-person council, but I always say this, 70 plus 1. Because the high priest, so it was a 71-person council, was the chief. He was like the Supreme Court justice of the, of the Sanhedrin. And this Felix had the high priest, another high priest, not Ananias, knocked off. And now Ananias is the high priest, and he's corrupt too. This is... Uh, the high priest, not some of the others you read about in Acts. Anyway, he's very corrupt. He's very cruel. He's out for himself. And it says here now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down. Look at that. How in the world can you come down with from Jerusalem if you're going up on the map? It's because of topography. Jerusalem is real high up there, and they're going down to the lowlands. It's always the way Jerusalem is described in the Bible. They came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tortullius. Isn't it great? I mean, we heard from Jared today. He even do you, do you realize what he was saying up here? He told lawyers that he loved him, that he loved them. I mean, lawyers, folks. And uh, uh, and now we hear Tertullius says he's an orator. Well, he's the he's the lawyer for the Sanhedrin. That's who he is. And he's probably a Hellenistic Jew because his name is Hellenistic, which means he is influenced by Alexander the Great and his uh, influence on the world. And he's probably Jewish because of verse 6. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he is a slick-talking, smooth-talking lawyer. That's what he is. He's an orator. And you can see it right here. I mean... He comes in and he's called upon, and when he was called upon, verse 2, or excuse me, I didn't read this, named Tertullus, these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Here comes this unofficial, official trial. So this little courtroom scene, although it's not in a court, it's probably in the palace. Maybe he has a seat there or something, but whatever. Uh, And they're called upon, when he was called upon, Tertullus, he began his accusation. This is like he's doing his prosecuting attorney work. He's accusing Paul of something. See, they want to get rid of Paul. They're upset with Paul. And that's always the way it is. Listen, when you preach grace, because remember what Paul was preaching that upset these people so much, that Gentiles could also come to God. You say, well, praise the Lord for that because I'm a Gentile and most of you in here are. But see, Grace, in one sense, is scandalous, and here's why. 
I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you don't know who he is, he's a great Reformed pastor, and he writes about the book of Romans. There in your church, when you're preaching Romans, the real conservative hardliners ought to feel real uncomfortable when you preach about grace. And he says, when you get to the book of Romans, the people on the other side of the aisle, the really sort of loosey-goosey, sort of freewheeling people, they ought to feel really uncomfortable when you preach the book of Romans, both sides of the aisle, because grace goes against our carnal nature. We want to measure up. We want to perform. We want to look across the aisle. You know you do if you're outside of the Holy Spirit or without the Holy Spirit and sort of measure ourselves up and say, wow, you know, I've been to so many Bible studies this year. It's just so great what I'm doing. And you, you, you've been to 10, but you know, I've been to 40. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm giving a lot of money back there. Wow, it's just amazing what I've been doing this year. That's sort of how we think without the Lord in our life. And it's really gross and really icky. Should you say icky in a sermon? But it is, right? And you so you have that. And yet, if you're on this side of the aisle, that's the self-righteous side of the aisle. If you have this side of the aisle, the loosey-goosey, oh, I'll just sin and ask for forgiveness. Paul says that's sheer stupidity. No Born again, new creation person would ever think like that, Paul says. You don't trample on the grace of God. That's what he says, right? And so Paul is preaching grace, and people are mad. That's what's happening here. Here's the other thing uh, 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 he was preaching. He was preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't it funny out in the world in the culture of ideas? Go out there now. Talk about God. Pray with people. Do that. Talk about God all you want. And boy, as soon, boom, you mention the name of Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. You didn't tell me that. And that thing that he actually died and rose again, are you serious about this? Can you really believe that? And the answer is, of course you can. But there's something about it because here's why. There's a there's an unbelievable battle for people's souls that we don't see with our eyes. And you touch nerves when you preach grace and resurrection. And that's what Paul had been doing. And so here uh, you get there and this Tertullius begins his prosecuting time, his accusations saying this. Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace. What a slick talker. Because if you knew anything about the history of Felix, there wasn't great peace, folks. There were riots going on. He eventually gets kicked out of office because he allows too many riots. Well, anyway, he was called upon. He says, seeing that through you, Felix, we enjoy great peace and prosperity, wasn't a lot of prosperity either. You knew who the people who were prosperous? Sort of like today. The politicians and the lawyers. (laughs) And I'm a lawyer, and I'm not prosperous. But anyway, uh, uh... that's what it was because he, the Romans had their thumb on, on them and taxed them heavily. There wasn't a lot of prosperity for normal people. Joe, Q public. No. So he's buttering him up. And you know what the Proverbs say about false flattery. It's evil. It's sinful. And in a lot of ways, uh, when you read the Proverbs, you understand that if you're a person who gives false flattery, one of the things, or, Yeah, one of the things that you're worshiping is yourself because you like people to think well of you 
So you'll go and even tell falsehoods in your flattery just to keep people at bay and make them like you. Boy, that's a hard truth to face, isn't it? And yet that's what we do. And here he's giving false flattery for a different reason. He's doing it because he wants to win the case. And he wants to, uh, uh, as he's being paid by the council probably, he wants to make sure that the uh, ruling here by the Roman authorities is that Paul is knocked out, taken out of service. Great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always in all places. What a lie. They hated the Romans. Most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. No, 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 no. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further. You hear me? Okay. Uh, Not to be tedious to you any further. Okay. Okay. Uh, we accept it always and in all places with all thankfulness. Never let, not to be tedious. I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man, what? First, a plague, or in some Bibles, a pestilence. A pest. A plague. He's infecting people. And that was sort of true. He was infecting people for the gospel. And he's also a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. And that's sort of true. I mean, he has kernels of truth in here. When he goes to Jerusalem, he doesn't shy away from talking about the grace of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for those who didn't want to hear it, that is dissension. And oh, by the way, just as a side note, My boys were at with Jared that day, and they were in the crowd. Now, Jared was speaking to a crowd that was mostly or a lot made up of folks who are Jewish. And to put it lightly, they didn't enjoy a lot of what Jared was saying. Just let that sink in for a minute. Jared grew up in Squirrel Hill. He knows these people. He's been around them his whole life. But the Lord put on his heart to tell the truth. And that's what the same that's happened with Paul. He's telling the truth. He's giving the gospel. And if that creates dissension, well, that creates dissension. But not the type of dissension that Tertullius is saying. So he's creating dissension among the Jews throughout the world, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that's sort of true. He is one of the ringleaders. And why would he be called Nazarenes? It was just a word or a phrase that came from, you know, where was Jesus? He was a Nazarene. And remember when they, one of the disciples met Jesus, and they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And of course the Lord would put his Messiah there. Insignificant, small, humble, and out of that, those origins comes the Messiah. Praise the Lord for who he is. And so, uh, Nazarenes, and he even tried to profane the temple. Now there's an out and out lie. He didn't try to profane the temple. He ad- adhered to the temple rules when he took those four people into the temple. Remember, they were Jewish. They thought he had taken an Ephesian in there, or a guy from Ephesus named Trophimus, but they, he didn't. 
He only took, by the way, some extra biblical accounts say that you had to, when you were paying your Nazarite vows, if it in fact was a Nazarite vow that these four guys took in 22 and 23, you had to record it in the temple books what sacrifice an account was paid. They could have gone and got the evidentiary evidence that Paul paid for four Jewish men, but they didn't do that. You get that? Because they just want to force their way in and win their case, whether it's true or not. And so doesn't it sound illegal to you? Just like Jesus, illegal trial. Well, he even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias, remember, back in Jerusalem, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, somebody said to me today, about the Robert Bowers trial. Isn't it a shame that it happened six months and it's all that money? And I get what they were saying, and I understand what they were saying, and I'm not disagreeing with the person. But you know what? You ought to praise God you live in the United States because you have a justice system that makes your accusers come and accuse you. You're saying, what's the big deal? (laughs) But if you live in a justice system where your accusers don't have to come in and accuse you and, you know, charges and the testimony and all that sort of thing, anything can be said about you and stick. And I'm tell- well, the reason I'm telling you this is it comes from Rome. <laughs> Praise the Lord that the Lord used these judicial things that we find from the Romans to set up our uh, system of justice in which a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. And I'm conservative, folks. You think I'm up here, but man, oh man, we live in the greatest nation in the world. And so praise God for our justice system. It's not perfect. I know people are frustrated with it. Try somewhere else and you'll love it. I'm not saying go to another country and pound salt. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying... This is the this is the best. But anyway, that's my little soapbox. Verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, look, Tertullius gives his account, gives his accusation, and then Felix just, do you catch it? Mm. And Paul does it. He knows. Felix is in charge here, but really, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is charged. And Paul says this, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation... No false flattery. That's true. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. He's like saying, praise God, I'm cheerful because I get to uh, have a, my defense. Here's another uh, uh, principle from the Roman law. I get to present my defense. Because you may ascertain that it is mo- no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And now I could take you through all the days and the monotony of all the days and what people speculate Paul did. But here's the point of why Paul just told you this. I just arrived in Jerusalem 12 days ago, uh, Felix. How in the world did I get a group together 
Are you, are you saying me just by myself caused this total uproar? I, I didn't get a group together of gorillas or an army or anything and go against anybody. No way. I've had no time to do it. I was just speaking. I was just giving my testimony. That's what he's saying. I had no time to raise uh, something up. This is just something that happened. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, verse 12, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. He's saying, the way in which you're accusing me, no, I didn't raise an army. No, I didn't go through the city and tell people to do this and do that. No, I didn't do any of that. But this I confess to you. (laughs) This is evangelism. Here it is, folks, evangelism. You want to know how to evangelize somebody? Here it is. I mean, in one sense, people get upset and, uh, you know, complicated and complex. I think people just do that because it's a front for being scared. And that's okay. I understand the trepidation of sharing these things with people. But watch what Paul does. I know we say Paul's brilliant, but this takes nothing. Oh, you've accused me of something, and here's what you have accused me of. I'm laying out why that's not true, and then watch what Paul does. All he does is just pivot to the gospel. You've brought up something that uh, uh, in some way adheres to something spiritual. That's what he's saying. And now he just goes, but, pivot, let me tell you about the gospel. (laughs) That's all he does. It's not magic. It's not, you don't have to study for 14 years to be able to do this. You just ask people, you know, get them involved in conversation. If you want to be a great evangelist, here's what you do. Fill yourself up with the light and life of Christ through his word. Pray for the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit and then go out and talk to people. And here, here's the next thing. When you talk to people, folks, you don't have to tell them all about you. How about listening for a change? The ministry of listening. And when you just ask them about their family, their job, and within minutes, might not even be minutes, it might be seconds, they're going to talk to you about a problem. And you're going to say something like this, oh, do you mind if I pray with you? And then they're going to say, uh, most people will say, sure, pray with me. And then you say, can I pray with you now? And they might say, no, pray with me later. But they might say, yes, pray with me now. And you pray with them and you're sincere. And when you're done praying, just give them the gospel. Here's why I prayed with you. Do you want to know? But here's why I prayed with you, because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus has done. Died and rose again and came into my life. And now I want to share his love and light with as many as I can. And that's why I could come here today and pray with you. And I'll continue to pray with you. I mean, was that hard? No, it's not hard. Just engage people and talk about themselves. You'll find a pivot point in everything they say or much of what they say. Right? You with me? All right. You're looking at me like... I ain't doing it. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You are. <laughs> so, so here he goes. He, he pivots. He pivots. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, they were called the way. Christians were called the way because in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life, the way. There's one way to God. I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, 
Here's what I do. I worship the God of my fathers. Paul did just what we just talked about. That's who I I worship, the God of my fathers, Jewish fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. I believe all things. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. Get that? By the way, this tells me something about the crew that came here that were Jewish, that were there with Felix. What does it tell you? This is a big quiz. Were they Sadducees or Pharisees? They were Pharisees because they, Paul said, these folks that are here today believe in the law and the prophets, which mean, and they didn't object. And Sadducees don't believe in the prophets, so they probably were Pharisees. Good, you guys are smart. And then uh, he goes, I have hope in God. What do you think Jared did in that courtroom? That's what he said. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. That's he, Paul here is ingratiating himself, where, proving his point with the Jews, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, uh, both of the just and the unjust. And I want to talk to you a little bit as I put up some uh, verses here now, if we can get to those. You see, there's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the dead. I want you to know this. Before you leave here today, I want you, if you don't know this, to know it. This is heavy on my heart for our fellowship. I would never want anybody to leave out of here and not understand this. As you get into the New Testament, we find that Jesus and others speak about two different resurrections. Did you know that? Bodily, physical resurrections. And I want every one of you to be at one of them. And I want none of you to be at the other one. (laughs) Because the first one, do we have that slide? Looking for it? Okay. Uh, The first one is called the resurrection of the righteous here, or the just, We see it in several places, including the Old Testament. It's referred to as a couple things. One is an awakening to everlasting life. Oh, wait a minute. Do we have the Daniel one? If not, I didn't send it to you. Well, listen to me. Here we go. Daniel 12.12. You could read 12.2. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. Uh, there's a scripture right there that talks about in the Old Testament an awakening to the to everlasting life. In Luke 14:14, 14, 14, there's a resurrection of the righteous. In John 5:28, there's a resurrection unto life. Jesus talked about it. In Hebrews 11:35, there's the better resurrection. And in Revelation 20 verse 5, there's this thing called the first resurrection. Oh, I'll send them to you. You don't even have to take a picture. (laughs) But now let's flip to the second uh, slide, if we have it, the resurrection of the unjust or the resurrection of the dead. Are we there? Are we there? Yeah, there we go. Daniel 12, 2. In that same verse in the Old Testament, there's a resurrection that's to to disgrace and contempt. In John 5, 28 and 29, there's a resurrection of condemnation, all the one and the same. 
And uh, here in this chapter that we're studying, it's the resurrection of the unrighteous or the unjust in the New King James. Okay? Are we all on the same path here? There's two resurrections. One of the just, one of the unjust, called different names. And Orthodox Christianity, if you die before Jesus comes back for His church... The Bible tells us in Thessalonians chapter 4 that in a twinkling of an eye, (laughs) we're going to meet the Lord, dead in Christ shall rise first, and we're going to receive our glorified resurrected body. That's called a resurrection. And I want you, the Lord wants you to be there. When do I think that happens? Well, I think that happens at the rapture. There's different timings on that. Other people believe different places. But I believe it happens at the rapture. Check out Thessalonians 4. When does the resurrection of the dead happen? Which is you're resurrected physically, but you're forever separated from the Lord. When does that happen? Well, I believe that happens at the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. And when does that happen in the sequence of the things that Uh, we believe are the end times. Well, here we live in the church age currently. And at some point, the church age is going to end. And how it's one of the things that are going to happen at the end of the church age, the Lord's going to meet us in his clouds. Uh, We're going to have the first resurrection unto life. Believers are going to receive their resurrected, glorified, resurrected body. Uh, There's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation. At the end of the seven years of tribulation... There's going to be the second coming of Christ where Jesus comes back to this earth and establishes a 1,000-year millennial kingdom. And at the end of that, with a lot of other details also, at the end of that, there's going to be a great white throne judgment. Now listen, hold on. I've been throwing out to you unbelievable amounts of information. You can take that scripture off there. I want you, just so you'll see it and know it, to go to Revelation chapter 20 for me, or with me, and see what this great white throne throne judgment is like at the end of the thousand-year reign. I want you to see how fair God is. That's what I want you to see. And if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. I mean, you could have gone to church for millions of, you know, hundreds of years or 50 years or 40 years or 40 weeks. And you've never counted on the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his resurrection for your salvation. You're just a churchgoer. I want you to know that you count on Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, and you will be saved and you won't be at the great white throne judgment. And if you're not at the great white throne judgment, praise the Lord. But if you are, you, you die. You're going to be resurrected and you're going to come to the great white throne and the Lord's going to be completely fair with you. Watch. Watch what it says. Completely fair. Then I saw a great throne, verse 11, and him who sat on it, who, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. I got to just tell you, if I'm God and I know everything and I'm omnipresent and all that, I don't need to have the books open. Thank goodness I'm not God. 
I would probably say something like this. You don't need to bring the books out. I know. You get it? But he says, bring the books out. And the books are opened, which is the book of life. Watch this. This is so important to the rest of today's teaching that it'll just be till 1.30 or so. <clears throat> and another book is opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. Here's what people say when they deny the gospel. Here's what they say. They, you know, come on. I'm not that bad. They do this. You know, Mussolini, way worse. Stalin, oh, Hitler. I'm nowhere like that. Jeffrey Dahmer, I didn't do anything like that. I'm I'm better. I'm going to be judged by my works. That's what you say when you deny the gospel. You say, okay, I'll count on my own self. God says, I want you to count on the righteousness of Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What would you rather have, his righteousness or yours? And the problem is, if you failed in the law this much, this much, you're going to be found guilty. But the Lord says, let me be perfectly fair. I would say you don't need to bring the books out. I know what's coming. The Lord says, let's bring the books open. Let's examine your life. Remember, somebody asked Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, how perfect do you have to be to get into heaven? And Jesus said, as perfect as your Father in heaven is. Oh, wait a minute now. Now we're getting serious. Perfect is your Father in heaven, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As perfect is your Father in heaven, one sin, I failed in all of it. And the Lord says, hey, you, you, you have it your way. You want to be judged on your own righteousness? We'll do it at the great white throne judgment. He doesn't say it like me. I'd be a smart aleck about it. He says, okay, let's open the books and let's examine your works, the things which were written in the books. And they were judged, look, a little further on, each one according to his works. And let me tell you the rest of it. It doesn't end well. You want to go on your own works, the Lord says, fine, I'll be the perfectly fair judge. But I don't know about you, but when I read, you have to be as perfect in my, as my Father in heaven, here's what just immediately comes to mind. Help I need help. I need a savior. So Paul's no dummy, is he? You go back to what he's talking to a governor of Rome about. It's sort of like being at a federal court, speaking to the judge and the defense lawyers and the prosecuting attorneys and the man who murdered your dad. And he says... There's going to be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust, uh, 16. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. He says, this doctrine makes me live my life in a way that I honor God and I honor men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings. I had this gift. And I was bringing him to the Jews, he's telling the court, Felix here. And in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything else against me. Or lest let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, uh, uh, 
among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. He's saying, look, look, look. Let's cut through all the, you know what? I'm here because of one thing. The resurrection of the dead. People don't like to hear it. It's uncomfortable. Even when I was saying it probably today and talking to you about it, some of you are uncomfortable maybe. Maybe you're uncomfortable in here. Maybe you're uncomfortable for a family member. Maybe you're uncomfortable for a friend. I don't know. But it's uncomfortable. And Paul says, I get it. And when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings. (laughs) Okay, that'll be enough. (laughs) And when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'm going to make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit for him. He he could come and go with liberty, or friends could. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, now I know it's getting late in the day, but listen, you got to know this, or this doesn't make sense. Who's Drusilla? Drusilla's great-grandfather, Herod the Great, tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2. Drusilla's great-uncle murdered John the Baptist and mocked Jesus in Luke chapter 23. And in Acts 12... She talks of her father, or it talks of her father. Excuse me, she didn't talk about it. But Acts 12 tells us the story of her father killing the apostle James. This gal had been around the way, the people of the way. And this is, she's a very young person, and this is Felix's third marriage. Now in that context, look at what Paul says. And after some days, when Felix came, verse 24, with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning faith in Christ. You know, Paul, the things you said were interesting. Come back and talk to me and my wife about what you said. Imagine. (laughs) Do you ever think Paul imagined this is the way he would be before kings and councils? Did Jared Younger ever think that? In October 1st of 2018, he'd be standing here and having witnessed to a whole federal court, including the reporters, who, by the way, most of them aren't putting what Jared said up. One did, one did, one did. But God uses all the things, even the horrific things, and can turn it around. So here they go, come on back, Paul. Now, just, you, you just got to, I know, but you got to listen to what he says. This is genius. And if you want to be a genius, just write it down. <laughs> this is genius. Here you got this guy and this gal who think they're self-righteous and rich and everything's great and they're in control and they're trying, Paul. And, you know, we'll wreck marriages and we'll create riots and we'll have a family of murderers and all that sort of thing. But everything's cool because we're rich and all that sort of thing. And they come and speak to Paul. And Paul listen, can you hardly believe what he talks about? And now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, 
Felix was afraid. And that word afraid is very strong. He was trembling and answered, Go away for now. When I have convenient time, I will call for you. Now, listen, real quick. I know it's late. But, you know, the verse of the Bible that's impacted me more than any verse of my life, it's given me liberty in my walk. It's given me acceptance in my walk. It gives me security. It gives me hope. It's what gets me out of the bed in the morning. No kidding. If there's one verse, it's this verse. If you ask me what my favorite verse is, that's tough to say favorite according to the Bible. But this is the verse. And I think this verse is the heart of the gospel. And I know Paul was telling him about it. And it's this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is it. For he, who's he? The Father made him. Who's him? Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Here it is. Here it is. You want to stand? (laughs) Or you want to be resurrected to the resurrection of the just? Or do you want to be resurrected to the great white throne judgment and have to give an account for yourself? Here it is. This is the heart of me, for me, of the gospel. If you learn this and internalize this, I tell you, it revolutionizes your whole Christian walk because it's right at the heart of the gospel. He, God, made him who? Christ, who knew no sin. He was perfectly spotless. And in fact, all the time that he was on the cross, he still was without sin. But here's what's really interesting. He made him sin for us. Now, what's that mean? Well, Romans tells us that the sin of the world, your sin was imputed to Christ at the cross. God put your sin on Jesus. He never stopped being perfect and sinless and holy, but into his sort of, all the sins of the world were imputed to him. So that when God looked upon him upon the cross... In one sense, he saw all that you did. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the greatest news of all time. Because your mind starts going back. How great do you have to be to get into heaven? You have to be as perfect as your father in heaven. Help! I need a savior. Here's the answer. So that when you count on the finished work of Christ at the cross and his resurrection, because you can look in 5.17 of 2 Corinthians and see you're a new creation in Christ. You're not improved. You're new spiritually. Look. Now, remember, your sins were imputed to him. Watch this. Now when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to you so that God looks at you as if Christ lived your life. He sees you in Christ. You're hidden in Christ, Colossians tells you. You're hidden in Christ. He sees you through Christ. 
And how righteous was Christ? He was righteous. So that your sins were put on him, the penalty has been paid for them. In other words, this is like, you know, there's a movement in the church that hates the doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice. I'm going to just tell you, I love the doctrine of substitutionary sacrifice and praise the Lord every day for that. He made him who knew to sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when you surrender your life to Christ, watch what happens. You're never going to the great white throne judgment. You're not counting on your deeds. You're counting on his righteousness to get you there. And how much did you participate in his righteousness? You just received all that he has for you. Unbelievable. Amazing. You think, I think about some of the stuff I've done in my life that Jesus paid. Wow. Well, come back and we'll finish out. He also preached self-control. Can you believe that he talked to Drusilla and Felix about self-control? Can you believe that? What a bold guy. And yes, of course, fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Within yourself, you can control your passions. Passions are okay in the right context. Who here has an eating passion? I do. Sometimes I let it get outside the boundaries of where it's supposed to be, especially if I go to Al's and get hot fudge sundaes or whatever I get. Sex is a passion. Sex is great within the confines of the marriage. And we know what happens outside, but, you know, there's forgiveness for that too. Well, what else did he preach? The judgments to come. See, if you're counting on the righteousness of Christ, isn't this wonderful? You're still going to be judged. Did you know that? You're just not going to be at the great white throne judgment. You're going to be a judgment of stewardship or the Bema seat judgment, 2 Corinthians 5. It's in there too, where God's going to evaluate what you did with what he gave you. He's going to bring to light all the things you thought in the secret that you didn't think were. And he's going to melt that all away and bring you into the kingdom with just what's going to last forever. And by the way, just so you know, you know, your Porsche ain't making it. Your Martha Stewart China. Your Joanna Gaines couch. It's not going to make it, but you know what is going to make it? Faith, hope, love. What you did in the name of Christ. That's what's going to make it. Those are the things that matter. The Bema Seat Judgment. You won't be at the Great White Throne Judgment. Praise the Lord. Felix was afraid and answered, Go away. When I have a convenient time, I'll call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Isn't that crazy? He wanted to be bribed, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. He was, do you know this? Can you imagine the Lord, how kind the Lord is? Can, can you imagine saying, I don't have time for you, Lord? That's what Felix said. That's what Drusilla said. I don't have time. Let's get together at a more convenient time 
If I was the Lord, I'd say it's over. You don't have time for me. I don't have time for you. But watch what happens. The Lord lets Paul go down there and talk to him over and over again. Often, God gives second chances and third and fourth and praise the Lord because I sometimes say I don't have time for you, Lord. But after two years, Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Well, the baton has been passed to another governor. We'll see the rest of the story. But you've just learned something really important, I think, and I have too. We've learned something together here that's so important. How to pivot a conversation and what do you talk about? Here, just write down. Do it right now. Second Corinthians 5.21, evangelism. Learn it, grow in it, think about it, be blessed by it, and go out and share it with the world. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thanks so much for this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that these things would be knit together so that when we go out of here filled with your spirit, you direct us and guide us to people who are hurting. Lord, it might be me or someone here who's hurting. We pray you'd fill them up and patch them up and uh, heal them today. And then, Lord, you'd send them out and share with a dying and hurting world until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.